Conversations with Leaders is a podcast focused on the intersection of business and technology. In this episode, we're returning to AWS reInvent in Las Vegas for part two of a session from enterprise strategist Phil LeBron and Luke Hennikins. Listen in as they discuss reskilling your organization to meet the opportunities technology provides organizations. And don't miss part one in our previous episode. Let me share with you five of the yes buts we hear uh, from folks we talk to and how we try and overcome those. Because um, many of these myths are actually mental barriers. They're not actual barriers within the organization. Uh, and firstly, there's this myth that I cannot afford all the skills I need. I'd start by asking, can you afford not to have these skills in your organization in the first place? The reality is, if you take a strategic view on the skills you need and how to acquire them, they can be remarkably cost-effective to embed in your organization. You need to ensure that you're deploying your top talent to the areas that really matter to your business. Often we ask the question, what makes you you? What makes your organization competitive, unique, special? Putting that top talent into the areas that make you special and then providing coaching is a great accelerator for individuals with the potential and your organization itself. And it's something we reflect in our own leadership culture. I mean, we have another leadership principle, which is hire and develop the best. We treat, asset, we treat people as assets to the entire organization, not just to an initial role or an initial team they're recruited into. And yet, this is called Price's Law. And Price's Law says half of the total contribution to organizational outcomes and successes is the square root of the number of people in the organization. So if you've got 100 people, often you find there's 10 folks who are driving a lot of the outcomes in that organization. So your talented employees, the ones you've invested coaching in and training in, are often the ones that are having a disproportionate impact on your organization. And yet, if you look at talent management processes in many organizations, does anyone use the, what is it, 20, 70, 10, 20% top talent, 70% a few? I think Jack Welsh came up with it in GE. Not his greatest moment, to be honest. Um, because it's misapplied. Every function comes up with their top 10 or 20% of talent. If you're, if you're an engineering company, facilities team has 10, 20% of the top talent. Marketing does, engineering does. And it becomes a way of allocating pay and bonuses rather than a real talent management process. What we see those organizations do well, who recognize the impact of top talent, is they will reallocate that talent to the areas of the business which have the biggest impact. In fact, in some organizations, 95% of their top talent is moved into roles which are driving that business's competitive, abil uh, the ability to be competitive. And you may say, you know, how can you take someone from facilities and put them in an engineering role? But it goes back to what Luke was saying. Often, it's the attitude of the employees which matters the most. Are they willing to learn? Do they get excited and fired up by purpose? 
Does the purpose of your organization appeal to not just their head, but the heart as well? And are you investing in really making sure those individuals are succeeding in their roles? And this approach needs to cut across your entire organization. You know, no one wants to give up their talent. If I have a high-performing team, I don't want to say, you know, take my talent. So it's really important as a leadership team, you're looking across your entire organization and making sure you're allocating talent in the right areas. The other thing top-performing teams do well, top-performing organizations do well, is they take a strategic view of skills in their organization. They look at, what skills do I have? What skills will I need in the future? And how's our industry and business changing? And what does that mean to the skills I will need even further into the future? So we view skill sets not as a fixed attribute of an individual, but things that will, something that will change over time. And quite simply, if you think about the skills you need to acquire, you can start to look at which skills will we need less of in the future, which skills will I need more of? Will I need less mainframe programmers in the future? Can I start to cross-train, retrain some of those folks to be comfortable with Python? Become data scientists, perhaps? We've seen this done, and it's amazing. You know, to, anyone manage a mainframe here? Your heroes. I mean, they're complex. They have often 50 years' worth of organizational knowledge embedded in them. So you've got this incredible talent in your organization that you can invest in and really liberate and put at the forefront of your business. So we look at retraining, reskilling as a PL. And you know, of course, reskilling is never completely free. But you have to consider it at an organizational level, not just at an individual level. As Luke said, the amount of training dollars spent per individual has barely moved. The only reason it's moved is inflation in, in reality, even though the world is more complex around us. But by incorporating learning into everyday activities, a lot of that large upfront cost organizations often go through can be avoided. You can avoid a lot of that unnecessary capital outlay by looking at how do you incrementally develop folks' skills. Um, one of our own studies shows that using simple things like training and certification, but then allowing individuals to practice what they've learned immediately in the workplace has about a six-month payback, which is pretty good, a pretty good investment, and is more cost-effective than trying to recruit all your skills externally. Okay, so many organizations get what I said, but then there's a second myth. We don't have time to invest in learning. You heard Luke talk about the 30%. Um, proclaiming there isn't enough time is simply the wrong way of framing the problem you face. We're all busy after all. We're bad. As human beings, we're bad at prioritization. We're really good at deciding what our priorities are. We're really bad in deciding what we're not going to do. And what we see is organizations that become increasingly complex lose the top talent first. So the more complex your organization becomes, the people who have the passion, desire, and skills to help your organization succeed feel like they can't get anything done, and so they leave. Which is interesting, given we talk a lot about digital transformation. And at the end of the day, digital is about becoming more responsive. So um, stealing something from my colleague's home country, 
Um, there's nothing more precious than time. So instead of the leader who just comes up with new ideas, how about being the leader who ruthlessly eliminates those activities in your organization which are preventing people acquiring new skills? There's a phenomenon, a law called Parkinson's Law. A, a British civil servant in the 1960s reckoned that bureaucracy grows by about 6% a year if you do nothing. So it's not good enough to, to do nothing. You have to literally root through your organization. What are all those processes that are sucking the life out of people? What are those things which are preventing people getting their job done and just increasing the number of governance and steering meetings you have? So what is it that your people are spending time on? They're not to blame. They're working in the environment that's, that has been created for them. What happened during COVID is this, is with less meetings, with less overhead, individuals invested more time in learning and in productive activities, externally facing work, rather than the managing up, down, and across. How can we create that sort of environment where people feel like there's the opportunity to learn and spend even more of their time on the things that matter to your customers? Some simple ideas, you know, how do you redesign work? How do you optimize work and how do you automate work? So how do you look at what your employees are doing, what you do as a leader? How much time do you spend in meetings, for instance? There's an interesting study done a while ago that showed the average manager spends, I think it was 60% of their time meeting other managers in their organization and about 40% of their time writing reports for their organization's consumption. How do you minimize that? How do you automate it? This isn't about replacing people. It's about replacing some of the bureaucracy so you create the freedom for, or the time, for those individuals to learn. Interesting factoid for you. Before the 1900s, the word priority didn't have a plural. Has anyone got one priority in their organization? Has anyone got 400? Yeah, a few more hands. Exactly. Too many priorities, too much multitasking. The third issue we hear a lot about is um, we don't believe we have the right people in organizations. And this, this is a real excerpt from a job wreck I saw years ago. Uh, this individual must have a GPA of four and uh, three degrees and have transformed two companies completely with artificial intelligence. Anyone going to apply? Anyone done that? It's a unicorn employee, that magical employee that is going to come in and change everything. Or even better, rather than recruiting one unicorn, let's go find a herd of unicorns. Let's go set up a digital unit. I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing. Done badly, it's a bad thing. Um, and often we create this special organization over here. And um, it creates this tension in organization. The existing organization looks at, let's say, the digital organization, and you think you're so special. You've come into my organization, and now you tell me everything's wrong. And the digital organization says, good news, we're here to save you. It doesn't work. Um, too often, those, that separation between teams, those individuals don't understand how work gets done in your organization. What works, what doesn't work, some of those lessons learned. Combining, bringing in new talent, combining them 
sitting them next to many of the folks who are already in your organization, that's a winning formula to help the new folks understand how your business works and the folks in your organization to understand new ways of thinking about things. We hope you're enjoying this discussion. To join the conversation and engage with other business leaders on these topics, follow us on LinkedIn at AWS Executive Connection. So our philosophy is quite simply, often the team you need is the team you have. They may not have all of the skills you need. They have knowledge of how your business works. They have existing networks in your organization. They often have a passion for your brand, for your organization, that simply you can't just recruit in. And best of all, these individuals are available immediately. Most leaders know that upskilling folks is much more effective than chasing unicorns. Investing in team training and team learning has a massive impact on motivation. It has a positive impact on loyalty, on productivity in organizations. So by all means, ex recruit externally, but don't write off the people in your organization today. Start pragmatically. Bring these people together, as Luke talked about. Start with a specific business priority or challenge. Determine what teams you need, what people you need in those teams. Find the best people you have in the organization to put together in these, what we'd call two pizza teams. And then let them assess what their skill gap is. They will be intensely focused on the need to succeed in learning in the moment and driving towards the business outcome. We've both used these in past organizations, and they're magical. You see the energy created when these individuals feel they are in control of their destiny. And like the example with the janitor, they feel like they can really do something of meaning, for, meaning to the organization. That creates the seeds of your learning organization. Myth four, and I, I still don't understand this one, but I do hear it occasionally. Well, my employees, they don't want to learn. Really? Is anyone, does anyone, has anyone finished their learning for the rest of their life? Good. Yeah, no one? Good. Okay. The idea that folks don't want to learn is ridiculous. Often, though, we talk about resistance to change. People don't resist change. They resist being changed. Um, so I've never met these mythical um, individuals. What, who, the people I have met are individuals who have been told to learn skills for no apparent reason. They can't understand how this is going to help their job. So how do you help create this environment where people understand how these skills are going to help them and given the opportunity to practice these skills? Let me give you an example. Um, let's say you're a rock star data center engineer. For the last 25 years, you've been brilliant at running data centers. Um, you just do it naturally. And then I'm your boss. I come along and say, good news, Johnny. We're moving to the cloud. Your natural reaction as a human being, my natural reaction in this situation is, I don't know anything about it. I, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. You know, my data center's great. It's got us through 25 years. And then, eventually, there's fear. I know nothing about the cloud. How can I be successful? I've been successful for 25 years, and now I have this new technology. And then, slowly, given the right support, 
the right safety, psychological safety, there's hope. They may not be as effective in the cloud initially, but they start to acquire the skill, and eventually you end up with a rock star cloud engineer. And part of the reason we believe incremental learning is so important is often we get very comfortable in organizations. Yeah, every now and again we go on a training course, but we don't actually change what we do, that comfort zone. In other cases, suddenly all of this technology changes and we need skills desperately and we're pushed into this panic zone where we're being asked to acquire skills and we're not given the time to actually practice them. So how do you create this pace of learning in your organization where people are acquiring these skills ahead of time having the opportunity to practice them? So you end up with this situation where the entire organization is being brought along on a journey where everyone's skills are improving over time. It's not about having 50% of people certified in a particular skill. It's about, just like an agile team, measuring relative improvement. Agile team would measure things like delivery velocity, not to get to one release a week, but to get better and better and better. That's how we see training. The other thing I'd encourage folks to do is, um, how do you create the right incentives for learning? How do you create, for instance, career paths where learning is rewarded? How do you create an opportunity where people can show off their skills? Simple things like that have a profound impact on organizations. For any psychologists in here, I won't belabor this point, but also recognize that different people have different learning styles. Some people are going to gravitate to a new technology and go learn in their own time. Other folks are going to say, here we go again, you know, the boss has said, I need these new skills. If I leave it long enough, they'll change their mind and we can go back to normal. So you as a leader have to reiterate the purpose. What's the link between the company's purpose and learning these new skills? You have to role model these skills as well. We've seen CEOs and CIOs do things like cloud certification to role model this behavior. And then there's a lot of individuals who are just concerned. They're in that fear stage. How do you recognize their expertise? How do you recognize and celebrate some of their learning, some of the mistakes as they go through this learning process? Fifth learning myth is um, people will leave if we train them. One of my favorite refrains is, is this on, uh, I think it was a LinkedIn thing. CFO says to the CEO, if we train people, they'll leave. CEO says to the CFO, if we don't, they'll stay. So um, a, uh, a famous CIO, you know, charismatic dude, once said this, it's actually better to create an environment where people are learning all of the time in the organization, recognizing you'll lose some folks, they're not having the skills you need in the first place. That in itself will create an environment where people want to learn. So let's maybe start to draw this to a close. We've seen that modern organizations have seen a significant shift in how they approach organizational learning. They go beyond simply sending people to classroom training um, and, and base their learning on regurgitation of what they've heard in a the classroom. They make it an ongoing flow of learning about how to do better and creating new skills. 
They continually also change their own assumptions about what works and what doesn't work. And they understand that they become better through making mistakes. They understand the benefit and the importance of creating this psychological safety that helps their organization become better with every mistake they make. And they see all of this as an investment, not simply as a cost. Now, I hope that just like there are many different ways of moving to the cloud, you've seen that there are many different ways of increasing the competence and capability in your organization. Not every skill needs to change, but everybody needs to learn. Some people might need some incremental training. Other people maybe more fundamental increase in skills to, uh, to go and, and be successful in uh, new opportunities. Some people might have to abandon some of the skills that have served them well over their careers. And let's not forget that we have to recruit people, uh, which we all have to do, into the organization to accelerate the learning curve or to deal with attrition. And finally, don't forget to look at your existing roles. Are you making sure that your people are spending time on the right priorities? Are you making sure that people are not wasting their time on your organizational bureaucracy? As ever, we would say our advice is to just get on with it. Don't overthink this. Start small, learn fast, and scale things that really work across your entire organization. The only barrier to becoming what we've discussed is a learning organization, is your own motivation and drive to do it. To end up with, we'll give you five things that you could start doing right next week when you're back in the office. First of all, and most importantly, create a plan. Think through what it is that you're going to need to do in the future, what skills you're going to need, which skills you don't need anymore, what roles you want to bring in-house, what roles you might want to start outsourcing, and how much recruitment, retraining, and reskilling and upskilling you'll have to do as a result. Now, this plan is never going to be perfect, but it's an incredibly useful tool to tell the story of what's ahead of you, first of all to yourself, but also to your organization and to your stakeholders. The second thing is that we hear lots of people complain about how siloed their organization is. Well, break the silos by mixing people up. Diversity and diversity in teams is the best way to deal with narrow mindsets. It creates creativity. It helps people to learn from each other. Different people with different expertise in the team will start to cross-training each other and as a result, the overall understanding of what's going on and what needs to be done is increasing. The third thing you could do is to really bring to life this idea of a learning organization by walking the talk. Show to your organization what it means to candidly admit your mistakes and talk about what you've learned from them. As a leader, dive deep every now and then. It's not the same as micromanagement, but it shows people that what they do is important and that quality matters. And ensure that people go after the root cause, to ensure ongoing learning, to ensure that no mistake is left aside to help improve the organization. Create 
a really learning organization by creating opportunities for people to share their knowledge. Maybe even gamify this approach, giving people tokens for what they've learned and how they teach others. Think about educating senior executives about things that they're too afraid to ask in public and do it in small teams, in small groups, so that they're not afraid to ask. Institutionalize retrospectives in your organization. Make sure that your teams invest the time in, in doing this and therefore creating learning. And importantly, consider recruiting people who are excellent learners as opposed to people who just have the skills you need right now. And finally, give power to the people. Let your teams take charge of their own learning. Why not let communities of practice or guilds design their own certification and training programs on behalf of the entire organization? Allow the experts to make other people more skilled in their field of expertise for the benefit of all. I hope that what we've done in the past hour has given you some of the ideas and the inspiration that we feel when we talk about a learning organization to start applying some of the lessons as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Leaders, brought to you by AWS Executive Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word and subscribe, share, rate, and review. Visit aws.amazon.com slash executive insights for more on these topics.